This has taken a little bit longer than I had anticipated for us to deal with this subject. It should not have surprised me. I wrote a paper uh, in, in uh, my studies in school on how we got the New Testament and how we got the Bible. And that paper, as I recall, was about 70 pages long. I was so desperately looking for it so I could just reprint it out for you guys. But somewhere in the last 30 years, I've lost it. <laughs> so we've written this anew. But it's taken us a little bit longer. My hope was this would be our last week on this and we'd start in on the Gospels. We'll start first with the Gospel of Mark because it was written first. And, and, but we don't get to do that this week. And I'm not sure we're going to do that next week. And I'll tell you why as we go through this class. So with that, let's begin. Are you scared, by the way, in here before we go much further? I mean, we are in, in this church building I don't know who all's here today, but there is a roof over our head. And do you know who built it? Do you know the name of the people that put that roof up there? Do you know what they used to put that roof up there? Do you know what kind of material they used? Do you know whether or not they fastened it to the walls right? Because it's... It's like a big expanse. There's a lot of room for something to fall if they didn't fasten it right to the walls. wonder who engineered it. I don't even know the name of the people who engineered I'd like to know. I don't know the... Do you think they had a degree in engineering? Do you think they... Is this their first time to do it? Did they use a calculator or a slide rule or just long math? I, I, do you know? You know, they've attached it to the walls. Do you know who put up the walls? I'll bet it's someone different than put on the ceiling. And I don't even know what they used. They might have used some termite lumber. I don't know. Maybe they used some old dilapidated recycled aluminum foil and called it steel. I don't know. I don't know who put up the walls. I don't know what the walls are made of. They're holding up this roof. And I don't know what they're made of. Maybe I should be scared. Maybe you should be scared. I wonder how they attach these walls to the foundation. What if they just like figured the roof would hold the wall down and they didn't need to attach it? I mean, it's got the weight of the roof. Of course, the bottoms could slide out. Then the roof could come down. Now, I'm making a big assumption here that there is a foundation because there may not even be a foundation. What if they just like laid this carpet down on just stuff? Then what's going to happen? Are you scared yet? Probably not. I was trying really hard to scare you, but I don't see anybody taking out an umbrella in case the roof falls. I didn't scare you, did I? See, Bart Ehrman, he works to scare you. He works really hard to scare you. He writes books that are trying to scare you. Because he asks you questions that you may not know the answer to. And you don't know the answer to those questions I ask about this roof. But... You've got enough experience in your life to where you just sort of trust that it's built right. Bart Ehrman, 
he'll ask questions to you. If you read his books, he'll ask questions about the New Testament and about the Bible. On the New Testament, in this book, uh, uh, one of the books that we've been talking about, he asks this question, what is the New Testament really? What is it really? It's 27 books, but uh, where did it come from? Do we know, you say, from God, how do you know that? How do you know where it came from? He challenges you. He says, who picked what's in it? Do you even know who picked what's in it? If you don't know, how can you believe in it? How can you trust it if you don't know who picked what's in it? If you don't know where it came from and you don't know who picked what in it, do you at least know how they picked it? Was it eeny, meeny, miny, mo? Was it one potato, two potato, three potato, four? Was it, I'll arm wrestle you for revelation? How did they do it? When did they do it? These are the kinds of questions he says most people who read and believe this book never even ask those questions. And so he gets you worried when you read him. And he gets you thinking, well, you know, I've never really asked that. That's a really good question. It's not that different than me asking you about the roof, though. Just because you don't know who put put this together, when they did it, how they did it. You don't have to just write it off and be scared to death. There are actual answers to those questions, and that's what we're going to discuss today and next Sunday. There are very legitimate, just like if I'm scaring you about the the auditorium in here, there are answers to who did this stuff. And I'm sure we could dig around in the paperwork if it meant that much to you and we could find that out. So let's do it. Here's what Bart Ehrman has to say. I've got three long quotations. You're going to have to work with me because I really want us to read critically. And by that, I mean read carefully. If you just read some things, they get into your brain. You've sometimes got to read very, very carefully, especially if someone is trying, can I just say it, to trick you, to beguile you. Here, this is what Bart has to say. The New Testament did not emerge as an established and complete set of books immediately after the death of Jesus. Many years passed before Christians agreed concerning which books should comprise their sacred scriptures with debates over the contour of the canon, which means the collection of sacred texts, that were long, hard, and sometimes harsh. In part... This was because other books were available, also written by Christians, many of their authors claiming to be the original apostles of Jesus, yet advocating points of view quite different from those later embodied in the canon. That is from his book, Lost Scriptures, books that did not make it 
into the New Testament. Look at what he has to say, but let's look at it carefully and critically. He starts out, the New Testament did not emerge as an established and complete set of books immediately after the death of Jesus. This didn't come out just, oh, Jesus died and it came out. Now, I looked for someone very profound to respond. And I found it. Einstein. Duh! Well, of course it didn't immediately emerge as an established and complete set of books after the death of Jesus. 80% of this are letters written to churches that didn't even exist immediately after the death of Jesus. Pastor Fleming preached this morning on the letter to the church at Pergamum that's found in the book of Revelation. Well, the church at Pergamum didn't exist immediately after the death of Jesus. Paul's letter to the churches at Thessalonica didn't exist immediately. Paul evangelized Thessalonica. That's decades after the death of Jesus. That's just one of those things when you read it, if you're not reading carefully, you think, oh my, didn't really realize that. But in fact, the answer is just, duh. I, okay, now let's say something that matters. So we keep reading. There were debates about what went into the New Testament. These debates were long, hard, and sometimes harsh. There were these, oh, does that got you worried? You don't know who was debating. We got presidential debates coming up. We've had presidential debates. What if whoever did it had an oops moment and messed up? Just because of lack of sleep or whatever it may have been. What do you do? These were long, hard, and sometimes they were harsh. Do you wonder if someone hit somebody? Okay. I went back and I asked Einstein about it. This is what Einstein told me. He said, Mark, put it into context. I thought, okay, I will. And we're going to deal with this question more next week. We're going to talk about the debates. We're going to talk about what was included, why it was picked, why it wasn't picked in more detail. But let me just give you a, a picture image to work on that gets us through this Sunday. It's almost lunchtime. And let's say you've got a chef and a, and a sous chef, his buddy. And they're setting out a buffet. And the chef's picked out Almost everything that's going on the buffet. He's figured out the shrimp and the meat. He's figured out the breads. He's figured out the salads. He's got 90% of the buffet bought, cooked, paid for, ready to go. But he's having a couple of questions. Do we need just something else right here? Maybe we need a little bit of spinach. The spinach looks pretty good for spinach. Maybe we need some spinach. Or maybe the salad bar needs some, some sprouts, which I understand are not very clean, but some people eat them. So maybe those things are there. The long, harsh, and hard debate was not over 90% of the New Testament. Let's be real clear that there's absolutely no debate at all. It had been bought, paid for, cooked, the meat's there, all of it's there. The little bitty questions 
were ones that came about because people lived in different geographic regions. And one region might say, hey, I'm not sure that's authentic. I, you know, that was over there 400 miles away and I don't really trust those people anyway. And then the ones over here were saying, oh no, that's authentic. It's yours over there that's not authentic. And so those types of disputes did take place. We'll look at them in more detail. But by and large, this debates were long, hard, and sometimes harsh. Not in context. Not in context. How about this? Other books were available, also written by Christians. Many of their authors claiming to be the original apostles. And they were advocating points of view quite different from those that made it into the Bible. Now that, my friends, is a deceptively tricky sentence. Because of this word right there, Christians. Bart Ehrman, if you had Bart under oath in front of a jury, you swear to tell the truth, the whole whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help you God that you don't believe in. His response, if he said I do, would be, that's what I said is accurate. And it is, and it's not. You see, there's some trickery going on here. Let me explain it to you this way. What is a Christian? I don't want to offend anybody, but Pastor Fleming says we're allowed to speak truthfully from here. And we do so. From my perspective. Is this a Christian? No. The Book of Mormon is not a Christian book. I don't care if it says on the title, Another Testament of Jesus Christ. I don't think it's from Jesus Christ. But to Bart Ehrman, sure, that's Christian. Because it says it is. He doesn't believe in Jesus as a deity anyway. Bart Ehrman doesn't. So for Bart Ehrman, whatever claims to be a Christian is a Christian. Which would mean also the Koran is a Christian book. Because it talks about Jesus. Says he was uh, a prophet. Says he died a martyr's death. Says he'll come again. So for Bart Ehrman, his statement is true only if you follow what he means by Christian, which is, Anybody who's claiming to follow Jesus, regardless of how Jesus is understood. Anybody who grabs the label Christian, he'll call a Christian. So in that sense, there are a bunch of what I would call pagans who claim to be Christians, but who aren't any more Christians than a Muslim is. Those are the people who wrote those things. He's talking about books that didn't make it into the Bible that talk about multiple gods. Here's what Christians think when they read. See, Ehrman's not writing for the pagan world. The pagan world doesn't care as much to read this. He's writing for the Christians because he wants to undermine their faith. So when you read that, oh, other Christians wrote things, your immediate thought is what we think of as a Christian, someone who trusts in Jesus, crucified, buried, resurrected. And we think, oh, well, those are the Christians. They wrote stuff that didn't make it in there. 
that's contrary to what did? I mean, the difference in what we mean when we read it and what he means if he's being truthful are entirely different. There's a disconnect. But here's the thing. I can't say, well, Bart, bless your heart, you're just a sloppy writer. This man is brilliant. This man is incredibly well-trained. This man teaches New Testament at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. This man is, is, is um, on the great courses material. This man's on TV shows all the time. This man lived in the evangelical church for a period. He has a degree from Moody Bible Institute. He has a degree from Wheaton. This man knows the difference. He knows he's using a word that if put to under oath, he could say what I said is right. But he knows that he's leaving a false impression to the reader. Because he, Bart Ehrman's using it in one sense to make it literally true, but he's written it where it causes a different perception among his readership. Now, what's his motive for doing that? I think it's clear to anybody who reads it and follows it, this is a man who claimed he was an evangelical born-again believer before he figured out that it's a bunch of, in his mind, gobbledygook. And so he throws it away and now is an agnostic. And he wants to bring as many people with him as he can. He is out to undermine the faith of the evangelical believer. And that's why he's writing these popular books. That's what he's doing. So let's pull the screen back down. Let me give you something else he says. He says in here, only one set of early Christian beliefs emerged as victorious in these heated disputes. They were having big debates. Only one set of early Christian beliefs emerged victorious. Now these beliefs and the group who promoted them came to be thought of as orthodox, which means right. So the winner gets to define who's right. There's a big debate. The winner comes in and the winner says, we're right. Our beliefs are right. We won the debate. We beat you. We are right. And the alternative views, and here they are, like views there were two gods or that the true God did not create the world or that Jesus wasn't really a human or wasn't really divine. Those just got labeled heresy. Originally, they're just different Christian views. But the winners said, we're right, and you'll be false, you'll be heresy. And as a result, the victors in the struggles not only won their theological battles, they rewrote the history books. And later readers, i.e. you and me, just assumed that the views that had been embraced or the views that, are, that we have have been embraced from the very beginning, all the way back to Jesus. In other words, it's, it's like this. If we can go to this for a minute. Here is the New Testament world. N-T... Make that a little bit bigger. Here's the New Testament world with all of its events. And then... We can do better. Hold on. Then there's a struggle. Automatic focus. Then there is a competing views. Uh, G, it's view A. No, it's view B. 
No, it's view C. And these are having harsh and bitter debates with each other as they fight back and forth. And then one wins. Let's say C wins. So C comes out and says, we're going to rewrite history. We're going to say, we were there all along. It was always us. And we're just going to make all of these people disappear. And, and everybody's going to understand that it's us. And it was what we picked out. And then we get to pick the scriptures. So we're going to pick the Bible. We're going to make the Bible what supports our views. We're going to destroy all of theirs. Label them heretics. And label us orthodox or right. And we get to do that because we won. And that's his perspective. So, look at how he does it, though. If we can go back to the overhead, I mean the Elmo, thank you. The computer, thank you. Only one set of early Christian beliefs. See there, he's using that word Christian again. Well, the truth of the... Because in his mind, by the way, the idea that Jesus wasn't human or Jesus wasn't divine or there are two gods or the true God did not create the world, he calls those Christian faiths. He says, of course, they were Christian faiths. They just didn't win. So, you know, we just... So the victors rewrote history and we've assumed that what we've inherited, we've assumed this was the original faith. This came to be thought of as orthodox or right. And everything else came to be labeled as heresy or false. Because supposedly the victors rewrote the history and we've just assumed the views that we've got have been embraced from the beginning back to Jesus and his closest companions, the apostles. And that's what he says. Then he'll add statements like this. The first instance we have of any Christian author urging that our current 27 books, and only those 27, should be accepted as Scripture, occurred in 367. He uses C.E. because it doesn't acknowledge Jesus, as opposed to A.D., year of our Lord. C.E. means current era, but translated A.D., Never happened until 367 in a letter written by the powerful bishop of Alexandria, Athanasius. And even then, the matter wasn't finally resolved. But that's the first time we have our list of 27, and only those 27. Over 335 years after the death of Christ. So he puts this up there. So what do we do with this? Well, we say, Bart, you're cherry-picking. Because he is. I want to deal with this this morning, and I want to deal with it more next week. Next week, we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of when certain books were deemed to be canonical or authoritative or seen, recognized to be, and other books that were not. And what did happen during that 300-some-odd years? And where we got to where we are today. But before we do that, there are two very, very, very important questions that need to be asked. 
The first question is this. What was scriptural authority? What did the apostles view as scripture? What was scripture to Peter and to Paul? What was scriptural authority to the apostles? And then number two, did the apostles truly hold the views that we hold today? Did we make these up? Are these views that just were rewritten in by the victors? Or do our views really go back to Jesus and the apostles? Do orthodox views of Christianity go back to Jesus and the apostles? We can answer both of those questions this morning, if you'll bear with me. Let's start with question number one. What was scriptural authority to the apostles? Now, I don't pretend that Bart Ehrman would ever listen to this or ever read this or ever watch this or ever anything. Though I would love to engage him in dialogue, maybe even debate if he should. Um, But what was scriptural authority to the apostles? That's the first question. Now, I want to deal in facts. These are facts that Bart Ehrman has left out. He's cherry-picked, I told you. These cherries didn't get picked. He picked the ones that flavor the dessert the way he wants it made. Let's look at them. In fact, the oldest church history book, if we want to read about the earliest church, let's read it from the earliest history book about the church. It is Acts of the Apostles, as we call it. It's in the New Testament. Bart Ehrman himself dates it to 85 A.D. That's a late date for the book of Acts. Some scholars date it in the early 60s. But it was written somewhere between the early 60s and 85 A.D. Even if Bart Ehrman's dating is right, and it's 85 A.D., it is by far the oldest account we have of the church. It's written within 50 years of the establishment of the church at Pentecost, 55 years. So you've got the oldest church history book, and I'm just going to use that because I don't want Bart or anybody who cares about this to ever say, well, yes, Mark, but what you're talking about is the rewritten history by the victors. No, I'm going to go to the oldest history book that predates the victors by 300 years. The oldest history book, Acts, is where we're going to get our facts for what the earliest church, the church prior to 85 A.D., What did that church before 85 A.D. think is canon and authority? It's got to be before 85 A.D. The things I'll show you out of Acts have to be before 85 A.D. because that's when it was written at the latest possible date. So what did the earliest church think back then? That's where we start. Here's the next fact. The earliest church saw the Old Testament as canon. Canon meaning a rule or authority. Revelation. Authority. The measuring rod. The earliest church saw the Old Testament as canon. 
I've given you all of these sites. There's no way we could get through this class in less than an hour and a half if I put them all on the screen. So if you're watching this video and you want to find the site, unload, download the, uh, the written handout because all of the sites and passages are in there. But let's say what they are. First, we know that Jesus quoted the Old Testament. And he quoted it as Scripture, and he called it Scripture. The apostles, of course, learning from Jesus. But more importantly, look, I don't mean more importantly, more directly from Acts. At Pentecost, which is Acts chapter 2, this is Peter and the apostles have stayed in Jerusalem waiting for the Holy Spirit to come down. The Holy Spirit comes down. They start speaking in tongues. Everybody from different languages understands them in their own language. And they're saying, what is going on here? And when Peter steps up and explains what's going on, he quotes Joel and he quotes David out of the Old Testament and he quotes them as prophets or voice pieces of God. The Old Testament as he was taught by Jesus and taught within his Judaism, was canon. There was authority in the prophets of God. They spoke on behalf of God. So we know for the earliest church, the Old Testament was certainly viewed as authority. What we would call the Old Testament today. Didn't get that term till Tertullian later. But the Old Testament is seen as authority. Now what else can we say? The earliest church also saw the words of Jesus as authoritative. Just as much so as the Old Testament. What Jesus said, what Jesus did, was just as authoritative as the books of Moses. In fact, Peter says this in Pentecost. Peter says, quote, Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. So we've got here in the early church, according to Acts, the earliest history we've got. This is not something made up by someone in 367 A.D. This is the earliest evidence we've got. And the earliest evidence indicates not only that Moses and the prophets were authoritative, they were scripture. What they said was the word of God. But equally true for the words of Jesus. Equally true for the words of Jesus. Paul, in his going away speech to the church at Ephesus, in Acts. Because you see, I can't go to Ephesians. Because Bart Ehrman will say, Paul didn't really write Ephesians. Okay? I'm not going there. I'm, Bart Ehrman's going to give me, Acts was written by 85 A.D. No scholar in their right mind can fuss that. So in the earliest writing of Acts, we see Paul being quoted as, Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Paul's quoting the words of Jesus as authority in his sermon and his going away talk. Jesus is seen to be the same as Moses, as the prophet of God who's got what he's going to say. And if you don't listen, you'll be destroyed from among the people. So the early church not only saw the Old Testament, but they saw the words of Jesus as authority, canon, binding, revelation, word of God. Did it in there. Here's another fact. The earliest church saw 
apostolic teaching as canon. What the apostles said was considered canon. We went through this last week if you were here. If not, I'll throw in just a reminder now that can tantalize you to go back and listen. But in Acts chapter 15, there was a big debate among the apostles and the elders of the church about what should be done on the situation of Gentiles becoming Christians. Did the Gentiles first have to be Jewish? Did the Gentiles have to become a Jew and then become a Christian? Or could they just leapfrog Judaism and go straight into Christianity? And the church had this big debate and then sends out the apostles with a letter from the apostles and the Holy Spirit. Because there was apostolic authority that the early church would honor. And when they spoke, they didn't just speak and say, hey, here's our two cents worth. They said, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. The church had that reflection that we read about in John's gospel, where Jesus said, after I leave... God will send a Holy Spirit who's going to remind you of all the things I've said and teach you what they mean so that you can teach others. And that was the mentality. So the apostles, what they had to say was also considered apostolic te- uh, uh, canon teaching. It was authority. It was the Word of God, the teachings of the apostles. Now, that was the earliest church. And Bart. You can talk to me about the church 100 years later, 200 years later, 300 years later. But that's a lot later. One generation can change things. 100 years? Would you like to go back 100 years ago and see what medicine they were doing? Would you really like to go back to 1912 and try to get some help for something that you need? I've got uh, a, a spot on my lung. Doctor, could you remove it, please? In 1912? No, thank you. They'd like stick a leech on you. Say, he'll suck it out. I mean, a hundred years makes a world of difference. There are philosophies, there are religions, there are lots of things that change in a hundred years. Anyway, let's move on. Here's the next uh, uh, question. Question two. All right, we've got the Old Testament, we've got the words of Jesus, we've got the teachings of the apostles. But, Bart Ehrman says that the scriptures were hand-picked to support the winners in the debate. My question is, no, if I can show that orthodoxy is actually the views of the apostles, then it's not hand-picked later. It truly does date all the way back. It truly is authentic. We truly are attempting to restore New Testament church beliefs. We are trying to hold to what the apostles said, not to the views of the victors in 325, 367, 385, or any of the other councils or creeds or letters that anybody wants to cite. If our orthodox views are found in this area, in what the early church viewed as authority, then I know who built the roof. And I got no worries. So, we got 13 minutes. Let's move fast. 
Here's what I did. For, for authority's sake, I grabbed the Nicene Creed from 325. That was this big fuss. The Council of Nicaea had a big fuss over is Jesus human, divine. Really, it was more toward an Arian heresy of Arius thought that there was a time where Jesus did not exist and that God made him. It's just that God made him first. And that was declared heresy, and the Nicene Creed was put up in response. Here's what it says. It says, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of substance, one with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man, he suffered, and the third day he rose again, ascended to heaven. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. And then this last little sentence that to us is a clause. And the Holy Spirit. That's what we believe in. One God, the Lord Jesus, and in the Holy Spirit. Now, is that new? Was this just victor talk? Was this the end of a long, harsh, hard debate where people had to get hit? Or maybe could we find this in writings that even Bart Ehrman will agree are authentic and apostolic. He writes off a lot of the books. He'll tell you don't believe Ephesians was written by Paul. It wasn't. He'll tell you Colossians wasn't written by Paul. He'll tell you uh, uh, 2 Peter's not written by Peter. 1 Peter's not written by Peter. He'll tell you James wasn't written by James. And Jude, who knows who wrote and who has a clue where Hebrews came from. And Revelation wasn't written by John. Neither was 1st, 2nd, 3rd John or the Gospel of John for that matter. Matthew didn't write Matthew. Mark may have written Mark. And Luke may have written Luke. But that's about it. But he will give us, because all scholars will, that Paul wrote Romans. Paul wrote Corinthians. Paul wrote Galatians. Paul wrote Philippians. There's no fuss about that. And I'm here to tell you that you can read those things. And you can say that in fact, the Nicene Creed is found very clearly in the earliest scriptures of the earliest church where there is no dispute about their authenticity. It's not something made up afterwards. It's not something cherry-picked by someone who wants to reinforce their views that have won the debate and stomp out the opponent, the, the heresy. It's very simply what the earliest church did embrace. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty. Is that found in the earliest church canon? Yes. How about the Old Testament? Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Maker of all things, visible and invisible. How about the Old Testament? How about Genesis 1 and 2? It's got a pretty much God making all things. One Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's go to the teachings of the apostles here. Paul, 1 Corinthians, no doubt about it. Written in the early 50s AD, no doubt about it. Paul, there is one God the Father and one Lord, Jesus Christ. 
One Lord, Jesus Christ. Is that made up by the victors? Or, Mr. Ehrman, does that in fact date back to the earliest church? It does. Let's keep going. Paul, Romans 5.10. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Why is that relevant? The Nicene Creed not only says Jesus, but Jesus is Savior. Begotten of the Father, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made of one substance with the Father. Ooh, how do we find that? You go to Philippians. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God. Light of light, very God of God, one substance in the form did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. That's what it says. Jesus Christ were all things made by him. Is that made up? No. Paul. There exists one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things and through whom we exist. All things were made, exist, all of us, through him. Well, what else? Who for us men and our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. Go back to the Philippians passage. There's more to it. Jesus was in the form of God, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Who for us men and our salvation came down and was incarnate, and made man. Kind of hard to say being incarnate and made man is not found in the phrase being born in the likeness of men. He suffered and the third day he rose again. How about Paul in 1 Corinthians? Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Dying, he suffered. Third day, he rose again. Not made up by the victors. It is the earliest Christian confession of faith. The Nicene Creed continues. He ascended into heaven. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. And in the Holy Spirit. Now here we add the words of Jesus because Jesus said the same thing. Paul says the same thing. It's replete. I've given you countless examples. I can't put them on here. I'm running out of time, and I want to finish with this. There's nothing in the Orthodox Nicene Creed of 325 A.D. that's not found in the earliest teachings of Christ and the church, the apostles. It is embraced by the earliest Christians. It is embraced by the earliest church. It's the reason that the church grew. And the idea that other thing, people started calling themselves Christians. If you listen to Pastor Fleming this morning in his Pergamum message out of Revelation, and he talked about how, oh, all of the Romans, all that they wanted you to do was pinch a little incense and put it on the altar and say, Caesar is Lord. Then you could go practice whatever you wanted. That is typical of the religions of that day, Greek and Roman. It, they were what's called synchristic. They, 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 they would take from different religions and, and meld them into one. It's kind of like this mashup of all these different faiths. And oh, here comes Christianity. Yeah, well, we'll take some of that and we'll mash it up with our beliefs on all this other stuff. Oh, yes, we're Christians. 
And we're Buddhists. And we're, you know, whatever. Zeusists. You know, they, they, could, they could take it and mash it all up, but that doesn't make them Christians. And that doesn't mean that when the church said time out, that's not truth. The church wasn't just trying to win a victory for what they thought at the moment. They were seeking to restore the te- and uphold the teachings of the earliest church. The teachings of Jesus and His apostles. And that's why they put together a table of contents and said, this is the Word of God. That's not. We'll see that more next week. Bart Ehrman wants to scare you. Don't be scared. Don't be scared. Points for home. The Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Jesus gave that prophetic word to his apostles on, uh, on uh, the, the lip of being at the cross. It's his last speech before they go out to Gethsemane. And John records it. And it's because there was a present recognition. Now, oh, Bart Ehrman would say, well, John didn't write that. Okay, I don't care right now, Bart. That's not the issue. That's a side issue. Someone wrote it, and they wrote it before 100 A.D. So it's still the view of the earliest church. It's still the view of the earliest church that the Holy Spirit was teaching the apostles, reminding them what Jesus said, so that they could communicate that to the church. It shows that the earliest church had regard and authority for the words of Jesus and the teachings of the apostles. It was in the earliest church. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that's no less true today. So please, join me in committing to studying our New Testament. Let's study it with confidence that we're studying the words of God that the Holy Spirit put into the minds and the hearts and the voices of the writers. Paul said to the Corinthians, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's not something made up by the victors. That's the earliest writings of people held in the highest esteem and authority. That's the gospel. And Paul's the one in Galatians 1 who said, If any man or even an angel from heaven preaches any gospel contrary to that which I've delivered to you, which is Jesus Christ crucified, resurrected. If any man preaches to you any gospel contrary, let him be condemned. That's polite words for He can go to hell, but not in the sense that we might hear it in a movie, in a literal sense. I mean, he's not like cursing. He's meaning it. Let them be anathema. Let them be condemned. I want to live for that truth, and I want to point others to it. Boy, I don't want to live my life trying to undercut the Word of God. I love what Pastor Fleming said. It will outlast all of us. It'll outlast Bart Ehrman. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Here's my final question. Why does Bart Ehrman think it's so important to spend his time in life undercutting the faith? It might be money. I mean, he makes a lot of money with these things. New York Times bestsellers. Might be ego. It's 
got him plastered all over the media. But I think there's something more to it. This is a man who says at one point in his life he embraced Christ as an evangelical believer. And when I read his works, I almost feel like he's trying to convince himself that he did the right thing throwing it away. You know, I don't understand why people would reject Jesus. It just doesn't make sense to me. Oh, I just don't believe. I just can't believe that really happened. I think most people are actually either not looking at the real evidence or they just don't want to. They're either upset, they've got an agenda, they've got frustrations, they've got, you know, I just don't understand why people would reject Jesus. It's my prayer that none of us do. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that even though we can come worship in this building, we can do it with confidence and integrity that it's been built right. We get in our cars and know that mechanics have put them together. But Lord, even far beyond that, thank you for the confidence that we can have that you are the victor in your word. And it's not something you hastened to put together later. It's something that you unfolded in due course of your time. But it's something we read, Lord, and we, we, we receive your word as we read it. And so it's my prayer that this class will really work toward understanding the messages that you have for us. And that we'll approach your word with confidence, Lord. That we'll hear your clarion call. That we'll hear your voice. That we'll, we'll see and perceive. That our ears will hear the messages you have for the church. And then you'll use us to further your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Through our Lord Jesus, we confidently pray, amen.